Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good evening, everyone. Uh, I know a few people are still coming in, so I will start slowly. Um, I am Severa Davis. I'm Director of Design here at the RSA, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to tonight's very special event celebrating the launch of the 2017-18 RSA Student Design Awards. Before we begin, I'd like to remind you to switch your phones to silent and also to let you know that we're filming this evening's event and also live streaming online. So welcome to all of uh, everyone who's watching us live and a reminder that the hashtag is RSA Design. Please do get involved in the discussion on Twitter. Many people will know, but uh, by way of introduction and sort of a quick um, necessity in case there's anyone who may not know, the RSA Student Design Awards is a global curriculum and competition that challenges students in higher education to use their design skills and, uh, and design thinking to tackle today's most press pressing social, environmental, and economic issues. It is a leading student program for design for social impact, and we are incredibly proud of the role it has played in shaping the mindsets and careers of those who pass through it. The scheme is driven by a wider RSA mission to enable and support people in healthy dialogue, build networks, be creative, and contribute to a flourishing society. Tonight marks the culmination of a packed day with design educators, many of whom are in the audience, and I'm smiling at them at the moment, um, where we launched this year's program, it looks like this, um, eight briefs tackling a range of social, environmental, and economic issues, everything from how we can address financial exclusion to how we can promote well-being and better mental health in the workplace and to how we can create and, and design multi-generational kitchens for the future. We can't wait to see how students across the world will respond to the eight briefs that we've issued and you're all welcome to join us in June of next year. Lots of things going on on the screen, aren't there? Um, June of next year as we celebrate another year of design for social impact. I just want to conclude before introducing tonight's speaker um, by saying that the RSA is an independent charity and the RSA Student Design Awards is only made possible by the support of our partners. Our partners this year represent a wide range of sectors and industries, but importantly they all share our belief that design can have a wider, more impactful and more positive role in society. Developing the briefs is a collaborative process and we are very proud to be working with all of them. So thank you to all of the representatives here tonight. Housekeeping notice is over. I'm delighted to introduce this evening's guest speaker, Sue Sadal. Sue is a partner at IDEO, an executive MD for Europe based in London. She works with clients to help them realize new opportunities, achieve growth and build their innovation capabilities. She has over 20 years of brand experience and design and innovation capability building. She has worked with organizations in the luxury, retail, service, health, food, beverage, and public sectors. <laughs> Importantly for us, RS, uh, Sue is an RSA trustee and a member of our design advisory board. Um, We're very, working very closely with her to drive the RSA's account of design and how it can have potential in society. As we'll hear, Sue is a strong believer in design and design thinking as a force for good, and she will share her own journey along this path tonight. So there couldn't be a more fitting speaker to celebrate this program's launch. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming Sue Siddall. Uh, 
thank you, Sevra, for that kind introduction and also for inviting me here tonight. I'm really, really honoured to be here talking to you at the launch of this year's Student Design Awards. It's a great privilege. And I thought it might be useful to share with you a bit of my own very much winding and unplanned career path, <laughs> which has ended up at IDEO and Design and Design Thinking, as we encourage new designers to launch their careers um, in the world. Um, and there's really three chapters to this particular story. Uh, the first one is... Oh, next slide. <laughs> Bode well. Next slide. Uh, the first chapter is a relatively short one. This is me some 25 years ago graduating from Nottingham University with a law degree. And they're my proud parents. I think they might be more relieved than proud, to be honest with you, because I'd spent my entire time at university actually in the arts library, hanging out with people, talking about creativity, and memorizing the notes of my flatmate who was studying law in order to pass my exam. So actually getting my law degree was quite a big achievement, considering I spent most of my time in the arts library. And... Uh, the reason was this, for me anyway, is law is absolutely fundamental to people's lives and how we live in society. But I, land law in particular, found it um, incredibly impenetrable. And although it was about people and human beings, it didn't seem to have people at the centre of the way it was designed. And I, it did teach me, I have to say, discipline of thought. It taught me how to memorise large amounts of information for very short amounts of time just to reproduce it in an exam and pass it. Um, but it was lacking for me uh, the sort of the, the people factor at the core of it and also a sense of creativity. So much to my mum's dismay of having a, a good degree that would get me a job, I um, ran in the opposite direction to chapter two when I joined advertising. Now, this was in the mid-90s, and I have to say, looking back on it, although this program, Mad Men, hadn't been, it wasn't out then, but when I look back on it, it, was, uh, it really was the last days of Mad Men. And so it was actually the first time that I'd ever seen a computer or worked with a computer. Remember those great, those of you who remember, those great big beige things. It's where I sent my first ever email. It's also, they had the silk cut account. People were still smoking at their desks and drinking at lunchtime. And this is the um, company and the people that I joined was MNC Saatchi. So it was just after Morris and Charles Saatchi had left Saatchi and Saatchi and started up MNC Saatchi with these partners. And really, from the complexity of law, this was all, advertising was all about creativity. It was all about big ideas and it was all about accessibility to people. Um, and back in the day, it was a, this is some 20 years ago, it was a time when actually you could create myths about brands. That's before technology made everything transparent and much, much more difficult to do that. And one of the founding philosophies that the Saatchi brothers had been using to create iconic myths and brands uh, was this, which was incredibly appealing to me after everything I'd studied at law and all that density. And that is the brutal simplicity of thought. So the idea that it's easier to complicate than simplify. Simple ideas enter the brain quicker and stay there longer. Brutal simplicity of thought is therefore a painful necessity. Oh. Morris Saatchi always used to say to us, if you throw 10 balls at somebody, they won't catch any. If you, so if you throw three, they might catch one. 
And so <clears throat> I joined them on one of their most iconic accounts was British Airways. Don't you remember about 20 years ago, they used to do pretty amazing um, advertising. And the, the philosophy of using um, simple messages with charm really worked in terms of building the British Airways brand. This is one of the many posters that I did a long time ago in the 90s. Um, Skyfly of packs back then were actually crayons and you know, things that kids would draw in. I think today it's probably like iPads, right, is the equivalent of that. It worked really well for creating um, brands that customers aspired to, great for communicating to consumers. But <clears throat> it seemed to lack, actually, uh, the ability to gather broader groups of people beyond the end consumers when you had to deliver new ideas. Let me give you an example. 1997, Newell and Sorrell, amazing design agency, had been working with, with uh, British Airways on this new livery and logo for the airline. And it was based on a <clears throat> very interesting idea. It was based on the claim that British Airways had had for many years, actually, which was the world's favorite airline. And the world's favorite airline was based not on the number of people who flew British Airways, but the number of different nationalities that flew British Airways, right? So it was more diverse, their consumers, than any other airline, and that's what the um, world's favorite airline was based on. And Newell and Stoll had taken this idea and expanded it in terms of all the different designs that reflected that diversity and put them on the tail fins along with a new logo. <coughs> now, the leadership of British Airways were really excited about this. Newell and Sorrell was really excited about this. MNC Saatchi was really excited about this. I was really excited about it, thinking this is going to be fantastic, you know, thing to launch into the world. Until I want, went home one Sunday for lunch with my family <coughs> and was talking to my brother, my older brother. My older brother at the time, and this is before we launched um, the, the tail fins, was a newly minted pilot at British Airways, very proud of the planes, very proud of his uniform, and very proud of the whole image that they had. Yet, because this whole idea had been such a tightly guarded secret amongst a few leadership folks in British Airways, all he'd heard were rumours. And we sat down to lunch, rumours about what was going to happen to them, what they were going to have to wear. We sat down to lunch and he said to me, what are you going to do to our planes? Am I going to have to wear a Hawaiian shirt? Please no, please no. And I said, no, it's a much bigger idea than that. It's a really interesting, nuanced idea. But the problem here is that he hadn't communicated with the people in the organization, the employees, that were actually going to have to deliver that message, that nuanced message, that more bold message to the passengers, the consumers. They were the ones that were going to be interfacing on the planes when passengers were going, what are the new tail fins about? Oh, I don't know, we're going to be wearing Hawaiian shirts next. That was the sort of thing that was happening. And so it felt to me like um, you know, something was missing here in the approach of simplicity, and my brother wasn't the only one who didn't like it. Um, Maggie Thatcher finally put the cherry on the proverbial cake with her handkerchief, and I think two years after launching, they took away all the different designs and came back just to the Union Jack. So for me, from the complexity of law to the brutal simplicity of, of communicating to consumers, 
It's a really interesting learning, and I did learn a lot, but there was still something missing for me. And so I left uh, advertising. Um, this is a lovely card they mocked up for me at my leaving do. I have no idea why I'm eating cakes with Jane Asher, but it was relevant at the time. I left um, advertising and I went client side, actually, because I thought there I would get the scope of design, business, operations, people that I was looking for, that complexity. So, second chapter of the story comes to an end as we go into the third chapter of the story. It's while I'm working client-side that I'm approached by a headhunter to go and talk to a company called IDEO. And I have a confession to make. Uh, even though I'm a partner at IDEO, I'd never heard of IDEO when I was approached by the headhunter. And I said to them, oh, what exactly... She said, no, she said to me, don't look at the website... It's incredibly broad what they do. You need to go and talk to the people there to understand what they do. So I immediately looked at the website. And I was really surprised. I'd always been a fan of design, but I'd always thought about it in terms of products and logos and maybe communication to an extent. But I was really amazed at the breadth of challenges that IDEA were applying design to. And the thing that really excited me was that they were putting human beings at the center of everything that they were doing. And so I went to uh, talk to them, and after about literally 20 interviews, <laughs> I got the job and joined them in about 2006. And although IDEO's history is very much in product design, it's always about, been about understanding the human element of that design. You might recognize the first mouse, the Palm uh, Pilot 5, the lily pen, this is a fantastic example of putting human needs at the centre of design. You know, people felt really uncomfortable, people with diabetes felt really uncomfortable injecting themselves or carrying around needles or injecting themselves in front of other people. So making the, the insulin pen like a pen, so it was very discreet, really sort of took away those social hurdles. And this, you know, perhaps not the most aesthetically beautiful design, but these defibrillators are still on planes today. And the important thing about them is that they're usable by people who are not healthcare professionals. So stewards and stewardesses can pick them up, other passengers can pick them up and save people's lives. So humans have always been at the centre of ideas thinking and design thinking. But for some years now, some 20 years, certainly before I arrived there, we've been using design thinking to tackle much more complex challenges. A couple of examples here. You can see the breadth of examples. One, new business models for um, waste management in developing markets. Uh, we're working on the future of mobility with Ford. That's some tracking of cars and mobility. Um, just designed a new um, uh, voting booth and way of voting for the LA, Los Angeles County. And it started last year, we started working with the Ellen uh, MacArthur Foundation to see how we might design for the circular economy. So designing products, services, and businesses that are actually good for not just people and businesses, but also the planet. So it's, those are some of the breadth of the challenges we're applying design thinking to now. And importantly, part of that is bringing along the people in the organizations that are going to have to deliver those ideas and those solutions so that they understand the why unlike the sort of British Airways tailfin approach being a mandate this is really bringing along the people that we're going to deliver it along in the journey and we do this all the time so the thing that I suppose I've been missing from law 
and advertising, even though they put people at the end of the process, was actually about putting people at the core and the heart of the process. And that's what I found really appealing at IDEO. And I think the power of this approach um, can be shown in two examples I'm going to give you. Quite extreme examples, one's quite small and one's quite large. Um, the first is, uh, and I apologise, digital photography was not that good 14 years ago when I joined IDEO. But this is a picture of um, one of the first projects I worked on. So <coughs> this was a company called SHS, and they make, they make um, nutritional supplements for individuals who have PKU. PKU is a metabolic disorder. It's what, when you are born and you have a heel prick, that's to test if you have PKU. It's quite rare, actually, so it's quite a relatively con you know, small condition. Uh, but the problem is you can't eat protein. If you do, you will be mentally disabled by the age of 16 or 17. And they came to us with a business problem, which was compliance of these supplements drops off dramatically when people become teenagers. Why is that? That's the business problem. And so we got teenagers with PKU, their families, and healthcare professionals into IDEO to try and understand what was the, what was the human question that we should be asking here. And what we heard from talking to them, thinking that they would all be about getting supplements and you know, supporting their PKU, was actually that what these teens were looking for was normality, right? The one thing you don't want to be, or they didn't want to be, was was abnormal compared to their friends. And some of the stories we heard were quite heart-wrenching. So the guy, Nathan, at the top there was found by his mum in a petrol station being force-fed a kebab by his friends who wanted to see if his head would explode if he, had, um, if he had protein, right? So being able to communicate this to others was an issue. Guy in the middle there in the green had to leave the schoolyard in order to take his supplements because everyone thought he was taking cocaine because they looked so odd. These twins here, when they came to the IDEO studio, they literally drank us dry of Coke, Coca-Cola, um, because it was one of the few things that they could drink and eat that other teenagers could drink, and so they loved it. And so the issue here was that they didn't feel normal. These products that SHS were making didn't feel, make them feel like normal teenagers. So the reason is that this is what those products <laughs> look like, right? So they look a bit more like horse tranquilizers than something that you might see in a teen world, right? And so we reframed the question from a business question to a human-centered question. How might we help teens with PKU to feel more normal? And then the design solutions went way beyond just products and packaging, actually. From, you know, how could they have the supplements and things that looked more like a Coke can or a soda can to flavors that were interesting and this, this one's quite interesting. This is a takeoff of sort of Maltese's uh, rip bag for those supplements there, which normally were in blister packs. And they used to have, have about 40 a day. So getting quite a few sort of blisters. And actually, in, in medical terms, this is quite bold for a healthcare company to be having this sort of design. But this is the sort of thing that teenagers related to. A service delivery, communication of how to tell your friends, and a website that allowed you to, you had to track your blood every day, to track your blood and get points to go to concerts and connect with other people with PKU. So products and services that help them feel more normal. 
The impact was of this, and it's quite difficult to measure increase in compliance, was that compliance did actually go up for these teens um, with PKU. So they started taking these products and these supplements more. But beyond the individual impacts, um, SHA as a company also changed the way that they innovated, right? So they actually brought teenagers and their parents into their innovation process every year in France in an off-site to help them create the things that would appeal to them in the future. So it also affected the organization and the way that they um, designed and innovated. So that's quite a specific small project that was like in six, a six-week project. The next one is a much bigger scale project. Um, this is for a piece of work on education in Peru. And you won't have heard of this gentleman, uh, Carlos Rodriguez Pastor. He is the most successful entrepreneur in Peru. He is a CEO of a company called Intercore, um, which is basically worth 3% of the GDP of Peru. So it's like Tesco, Boots and Barclays put together. It's a large organization that owns lots of different types of companies from financial services to drug stores to sort of huge superstores. And he uh, said to us, hello, IDEO, finally got through to us. Um, he saw that the future growth of his country and his companies, to be honest with you, uh, was reliant on the good education, better education for the growing middle classes of Peru. Now, Peru, in terms of you know, education standards, it is literally almost at the bottom of all countries in terms of its education levels. So this is, this is no, no small feat. And he had already bought um, 10 schools called Innova in Peru, but he was struggling to scale them up to the level that he wanted to. So he said to us, can you help us create international quality school? So not just Peru quality school. Um, figure out how to get it low cost, so it's affordable, and ensure that it can get to at least, scale to at least 100 schools. And, oh, by the way, can we also, we also need 25% internal ret return on the revenue for that, which is quite a big, <laughs> quite a big ask, big, big business challenge. And so the IDEO team went out to Peru and talked to all different kinds of families, so small families, ambitious families, less ambitious families, big families, and tried to understand really from the end user point of view what some of the hurdles and human needs were in terms of education. He also went into the school systems, and if they're asleep or roach learning, <laughs> Um, but actually to see what, were the, what, were the, you know, what was happening in the classrooms and working with the teachers to understand some of the constraints, which were there weren't necessarily clear standards, the teachers weren't necessarily supported, they weren't connected to each other, they weren't trained in the right way, there was lots of rote learning, and also the environment was sort of literally some crumbling school buildings and not necessarily areas and spaces that were conducive to learning. And so not just looking at the end users, working with the teachers, but working with actually all the humans, all the people in this system that were necessary, were going to be necessary in order to design a scalable, excellent quality, affordable school system, making them part of the design process. And what we came up with, with that team, with the Innova team and the Intercore team, was exactly that, um, called Innova. We together designed everything from the curriculum, teacher support system, 
the financial model, the technology, the spaces, um, everything that was need, needed to scale this and make it an ex excellent quality um, educational system. And to date, there are 40 schools with 31,000 uh, students and a thousand, plus more than 1,000 teachers. And by 2025, we should have 100 schools there, which was the original goal, and hopefully beyond that. Um, and even more interesting, I think, than the business growth, which is, you know, pretty fantastic, is actually the human factor in this that's even more exciting. They've shown in the last four years is that the academic schools are three times better than government schools and two times better than other private schools. That means that Peruvian children are going to be able to start playing on a global stage and compete economically, globally, not just locally. And it will see in 2008, it will be the largest private um, school network in, in Peru. Because this approach was so successful in education, Carlos Rodriguez Pastor is now working with us to um, use it for other things like uh, healthcare and working environments and his other businesses. So I think just two examples that really show the small and the large scale challenges that you can apply design and design thinking to successfully. So writing this and thinking back over the last 25 years and thinking forward, what are the three important things that I think um, I would take forward and how design thinking can be used? Uh, the first one is uh, asking human-centered questions. So we hear a lot about technology development and it's super important, but human needs are constantly evolving and changing. And if we can understand them and continue to meet those needs, we can solve lots of business and social challenges. And also, if we attach ourselves to those, uh, businesses attach themselves to those growing, those changing human needs, they can also grow as businesses. So it's a really sort of good um, uh, situation. So ask a human-centered question. The PKU example is a great one. Rather than saying, how can we increase compliance? How do you turn that into a human-centered question? How do we design for teens to feel normal who have PKU? Second one is it, if you want to get the sort of impact in the world that most designers and most of us are hoping for when we think we come up with a good solution, it's not enough just to design for the end user. We have to look at all the people in the system that um, need to deliver that and need to understand why we're doing that. So creating movements rather than mandates, the British Airways leadership mandate didn't really work. How can you get people who are delivering these new products and services to understand them and know how to deliver them? We have a whole studio in California, actually, that's looking at just this, helping organizations who really want to change what they do to create movements. Uh, and finally, uh, be optimistic. So one of the things, you know, I think we're now in a state of constant uncertainty. It's not just periodic, it's constant, right? And I think that's daunting for everybody. Um, but design thinking, I think, can give us the tools and the mindset and the culture to approach those challenges with optimism that there is actually a better way of doing things. And scaling optimism in a way, and I think that's something we could all 
do with. Um, this is actually the European um, IDEO team recently reviewing all our work for the year and actually being optimistic is one of our core values that we judge people on and that's not coming in and going high five every day. That's actually being optimistic that we can come up with better solutions for people. So looking back, I sometimes wish that I had discovered design thinking perhaps before I did a law degree. <laughs> But I'm really glad that I have discovered it. And I think there's no more exciting time, uh, whether you're kicking off your career or whether you're mid-career or towards the end of your career, to actually use design and putting people at the heart of solving some of the most interesting challenges that the world faces today. Thank you. I really haven't changed my hairstyle in 25 years. Slightly <laughs> worrying. Um, thank you, Sue. When I, when I was writing the introduction to tonight's talk and I was looking at um, Sue's biography and looking at lots of things about her and, um, and sort of trying to fit them in and figure out how to introduce her, and I passed it to her to ask her to check it, and she said, don't need to say any of that because actually I'm going to share my own journey along this path and I think um, you'll agree that was better than any sort of bio that I could have uh, read to you so thank you so much for that. Um, I'm going to use my privilege as chair here to ask a couple of questions and then we'll open it up to the audience and the first thing I want to ask you and it has that the pervading theme is about people and people at the heart of all of this. And you, and you mentioned it on the, on the first slide there about asking human-centered questions, and you alluded to it. But I'm wondering, um, we are living in a technological age, and I'm wondering, I guess, and I imagine lots of people here wondering your thoughts on how we continue to put people at the heart of it as we are faced with issues of automation and kind of an increasingly digital and, and technological advancements. Uh, absolutely. I mean, we are super excited about AI, augmented uh, uh, reality, and new technologies. For us, they really are more design tools, I think. Um, but I th the important thing is, is that it needs to be in um, for human purposes. Well, you know, it needs to be to enable humans to do better things. I don't think technology should ever be above us. I think it's something that we should be using to augment people rather than necessarily replace people <laughs> and I think there's a you know I, I think that's the the check that we should that's the way that we should use it as a tool to do better things rather than something that's going to take us all over and, and take all our choice away um, and I, I think we look at it in that optimistic way and I think if you keep looking at it in terms of human needs then I think we'll do the right thing by it. And my other question would be around um, diversity of thought and collaboration in the design thinking process. It's something that we think a lot about here as we're bringing together different, um, ex different kinds of people, different expertise, um, and we think that actually makes the design thinking process much richer. And IDEO is, of course, a world leader in all of this, and I'm wondering how you find that mix. I'm smiling at Jamie here, who's our head of talent at IDEO. <laughs> it's his job. Um, it's, re it's really, really important to us. Um, I mean, 
that there's the obvious gender diversity, and actually London IDEO is pretty good on that. I think we might even have more women than men. But there's the more nuanced diversity of thought that I think you get from different cultures and different types of thinking that you hire. And, I mean, in, in London alone, we have 40% of our designers are non-Brits. They're either European or international. And I think that's always important to be looking at uh, not just as a group of designers, but also how you mix diversity on different challenges, right? Uh, so that you have di diversity of thought in terms of the solutions that are coming out. Thank you. Uh, we're now going to open up to questions from the audience. There are roving microphones. We've got about 20 minutes. Um, and so if I can ask you to raise your hand if you have a question for Sue. I'm seeing two immediately. Um, one here at the front. We'll take that first. And then the gentleman uh, there. Hi, Sue. I'm, I'm a big fan of ideas. So don't take this question in a negative way. But the, the, the phrase people-centered always slightly worries me because, well, can you just elaborate on that? I'm, 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 I'd really love to hear what you mean by it. So, um, I mean, we toggle between people-centered, human-centered, user-centered, but essentially, it's understanding not only the needs and the changing needs of the people that you're designing for, but also all the people that are gonna to have to deliver that and understand why they're delivering that. So, it's, is, is that? <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's uh, yeah. So actually, so what we do do when we, when we, um, we don't, we, we look at extremes, right? So when we're looking to be inspired by people for design, we don't necessarily look at the, the core audience that maybe the organization might be targeting. We look at the extremes and we don't look at too many. So I mean, an example I use is years ago when we designed something called Vodafone Simply for Vodafone. And it was for um, some people my, my mother's age, right, who actually turned off her phone most of the time because she was afraid it would ring, okay? Um, which is not good for business if you're a telecom company. And so what we did is we looked at both people like my mum who were afraid to turn on her phone, but we also looked at young youngsters who were hacking their phone service, right? And so understanding the extreme sort of needs allows you to design, design something that will hopefully be um, applicable to a broader group of people. So that's one way that we... Um, sort of get insight and human insight is on each challenge, looking for what the extremes might be for that challenge. And that's quite, a, quite an important part of the design process when we're setting up projects, is what are the extremes? Also, how are we gonna get analogous inspiration from other industries and things that people are doing <coughs> in other parts of their lives? So it's beyond empathy, I suppose, Yes. Yes. And we have a question back here, and then I'll take those over there. So firstly, this gentleman here. Um, yes, Julian Saunders, formerly of Google. Um, if you talked about design thinking for good, you talked about design thinking for good, and all the things that you've shown are um, very worthy causes. I wondered if you'd comment on whether um, certain brands have used design thinking in order to hook us into habits. Uh, that are in fact bad uh, and as a consequence have achieved possibly disproportionate economic power uh, and what, what should be done about that? 
is the, is the question, does IDEO work, or just generally? No, it's a general comment about, I wasn't a comment of a question about IDEO yeah. so much. I'm sure you, you don't do that sort of thing. There was a book published recently called Hooked by a gentleman called Nir Eyal, who pretty much deconstructs the strategies of, of brands like Facebook and mm -hmm. Google and how they uh, integrate and inveigle themselves into our lives and have achieved yep. tremendous power in our lives. I, I just wondered what your comment on that was and whether you thought it was a good or a bad thing and yeah. where it all goes. I mean, it's just on idea for, for, for a moment. We, uh, we do commercial stuff absolutely that's part of our business we don't tend to be able to talk about it as much because it's secret uh, but what we don't do is uh, you know there's there's very much a culture at IDEO that the designers and the team decide whether something is right and they want to work on it or not so we do turn things down based on moral judgment as a business we really do I mean so designers have to believe that it's something that's going to be worthwhile in the world to your other question about um, you know, can uh, we be designing for hooking behaviours? I think, I, you know, I think that's just surfacing that that's been happening. So I think sometimes consumers have been less aware that they've been manipulated in that way. And I actually think that people are waking up to that. And I think, I don't know if you've seen the Copenhagen letter, which is a bunch of designers have, have come together and actually started to talk about sort of, you know, principles that we should be working by and that design should be open to scrutiny and people should understand whether they are being manipulated in these ways um, and I think that I think that tide's going to change quite quite dramatically actually with governments now holding companies accountable and people actually just becoming a lot more aware that their data is being used um, in a way that they perhaps don't want it to be I mean, I love the quote that if it's free, it's free, it's probably because you're the product, right? And people, I think, are waking up to that, which is it's, it's your data is the product. So that's why it's free to you. So I think it's shifting. Right, we have a question here. It was wonderful to hear you talk about the, the Peru story. And I was just curious, both at a personal level and for IDEO, how important is impact? And then the second part of the question really connects to innovation which is whether it should be disruptive or whether it is, you know, there's two sayings. Um, one is misattributed to Henry Ford that uh, if he'd asked people what they wanted, they'd have said faster horses, and I'm sure you're familiar with that. And, and that true innovation requires a leap. You know, you, you do not get the light bulb by incrementally improving the candle. So I'd like your opinion both on the impact side and about disruptive innovation versus incremental innovation. Mm -hmm. So on the impact question, it is, IDEO's purpose is um, disproportionate impact in the world through design, right? So that is our ultimate purpose. I think that we are constantly trying to measure it in different ways because impact, I mean, I showed you some impact figures up there for Peru, um, but I think there are, different ways to measure impact beyond uh, business growth and actually things like how many more children are going to be, Peruvian children are going to be able to play on an economic stage is a, is a great one. I think we meet, need more of those human impact um, measurements actually, so hugely important to us. Um, incremental versus disruptive innovation, it's, it's interesting actually how many 
people might come to us thinking they mean disruptive innovation, but actually it's incremental. And um, I think sometimes for really disruptive innovation, you have to take the challenge outside of the day-to-day -day business model. I mean, this is why labs have been, I know labs are getting a bad name, but you know, taking a group of people out of the um, things that the day-to-day -day business is being managed on and really asking them to disrupt that business. Um, and that for, that for us is really disruptive innovation. I mean, both are interesting, but it's really understanding what clients mean when they say disruptive, because sometimes they don't mean that. And also, culturally, that can be difficult, right? So the people doing the day, the current business, can feel somewhat jealous that there's a different group doing all the sexy future stuff. So the cultural... Uh, elements and the people elements of that again I think are really important to design for so that people are working together and not sort of not invented here in theory. Thank you. Uh, right I see lots of hands so can we take the uh, woman here on the end and then this one and then I'll take the other two after that. Okay um, yes thank you I was very interested in your Peru schools. Um, uh, I'm, I'm interested in really in how we of preparing students in schools, not universities. I know the design awards are about universities, but how are we preparing students in schools to be the citizens and workers of the future, say for the middle of the century, because at the moment we're not. So for example, in your Peru school, were you teaching them about design thinking and where do you think the role of design thinking is in education in the school system? Yeah, I mean, that's quite, honestly, that, that touches a nerve with me personally because I, um, didn't really know about design and design thinking. I had a classic law degree and I wasn't really aware that it was an option to me until I, I was approached by IDEO and I was sort of annoyed that, you know, and this is very personal opinion, but I feel that the British school system shuts things down very early on. And I don't think most people, I certainly didn't really know what they're passionate about at 14, you know. Um, so, I mean, personally, I think it would be great to create more awareness and options for people to do design um, uh, earlier on and understand what, what it can bring to them. Um, but that's quite a big systemic challenge in Britain, as I'm, as I'm, I'm sure you, you know. I think what's interesting, though, is as these you know, big tech startups are super exciting for youngsters, and that is a way of getting them aware of the different types of design that is out there. Um, but it would be great if it was also happening uh, systemically through the education. Thank you, because I'm Peruvian, ah. and I've worked in Intercorp, and I'm really close to the Innova case. So thank you for talking about that. And I would like you to explain to... This is a question for people that are not close to design thinking, that which would be a way for someone that is not close to it and doesn't have the economics to hire a company as IDEO to do a work for them, how should they start doing design thinking in a company? So um, we are very open about our process and um, we publish a lot. There is a design thinking toolkit on our website that we can, you can download and we, our .org, IDEO.org does a lot of work in developing markets. So we are we have published lots of tools out there in terms of how anybody could take 
up the principle and the process of design thinking. We're very, very open about that. Um, so I'd encourage people to look on the website, download that, read about it. Lots of people are talking about it now as well. So, um, you know, it seems to be in a lot of boardrooms now as well. Um, but I think it is actually very accessible. Listen, I, I didn't train as a designer, and I, you know, I got it pretty quickly, actually. It really sort of made sense to me. Thank you. And there were two questions over here. Um, I see. Okay. I'm going to take the two over there. One gentleman already has a microphone. That's, that's handy. <laughs> um, uh, and then there was a lady behind. Thanks. Um, hi, Sue. My name's uh, Graham Burns. Very much appreciate the talk. I was uh, just curious on your, your uh, slide around be able to create movements, not mandates. And I was just wondering if you can talk to an anecdote or a story around scaling up the design thinking toolkit to tackle more systemic changes as you as you get beyond companies and beyond individual design tasks into government, you know, systemic changes and, and how how do you need to augment design thinking to tackle the bigger systemic challenges of, of our world? Yeah, I mean, we've, uh, we've done it with quite a few, at least private sector organisations. One, I'll tell you the name of it, but uh, a, a relatively new startup, very fast-growing fashion startup that had sort of felt that it had somewhat lost its purpose. And actually, we did a large piece of work with them that we called it a purpose festival, basically. But we designed um, a sort of several weeks of engagement with all the staff of that company to understand what that new purpose and vision would actually mean to them and their day jobs. So making them sort of work through examples of, of what it means to them uh, as individuals. Um, I think, again, I go back to the... Uh, if, if the piece of design work has taken into account the needs and understanding uh, of why people might do things in an organization and communicating that in the right way. It, sh it should start to take traction, but it does need quite a bit of um, work to get broader groups of people to understand what it means to them. And that in itself can be a design process. So as I said, we have a studio in California that is literally helping organizations that want to transform themselves to be something else to really design the process of making it in a movement and engaging people um, in the organization. It's, 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 I think the insight has been there for some time, but I think the design tools to create those movements are, are relatively nascent, actually. Thank you. And there was another question just behind. Is that on? Oh. Um, hi, my name's Stephen. Um, my background's in design and um, lecturing in design. Um, I'm a firm believer in a user-centered design approach. And I'm also um, conscious of, as a business kind of element, intellectual property. And I'm really interested in how IDEO works with being open in order to do the research with, in an ideal sense, people that are much broader than your company staff, you know. Uh, but also being careful of intellectual property with, you know, I guess the companies you're working with. Mm -hmm. how, is there a, a tension there? And I'm just interested how you balance that in order to do decent, re you know, the proper research. Yeah. So we don't, 
when we do research um, with extremes uh, people, we don't necessarily tell those people who we're working for or what we're doing because we're really looking for their unmet needs and the way that they're naturally behaving and looking for those opportunities. So we also get them to sign, you know, um, documents that say that they're happy for us to use those insights, but we don't necessarily tell them the company or exactly what we're doing. And those people wouldn't also necessarily see the end designs at all. They'd, you know, be giving us insights and we'd be testing them with them, but they wouldn't see the final thing. The thing on IP, I think, is super interesting and it's something that a conversation we always have with clients when they, uh, we start working with them is that we, we I know this is going to sound strange, but we are not in the business of IP, right? Those, that is really for the organizations that are going to take those ideas to market to to own and make sure that they have, right? And so that's sometimes a, um, you know, uh, an interesting conversation with clients that, you know, our business is not checking and every single potential um, element of an idea to make sure no one else is doing it. Um, ultimately, the ideas, those ideas that they take to market, they would be checking the IP of. Thank you. Any further questions? Yes, uh, we have uh, one at the back. We'll take that, and then we'll take the few over here. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name's Mike. Uh, I'm doing some research in the field of mental health and technology. And one of the things that struck me is that, you know, we've talked a lot about companies, etc. <clears throat> is to what extent the question that is being asked is in fact quite politically political. So, just as a very simple example, mindfulness has become, which I also teach, is kind of, you know, the flavour du jour. But we're not asking the question about how we create a society that's less stressful. We've managed to make it a private question of individual capabilities dealing with stress. So, I just wonder, within the context of a, a societal level question, how design thinking can play a role in actually asking better questions? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's, I'm going to say spot on, and that's one of the challenges, right, in the Student Design Awards, is I think it would be really great to, to do, a, to better understand the questions that we should be asking around mental health, rather than necessarily putting solutions in, in, in front of people because I don't think we truly understand all the things that are um, I think creating increased mental um, health issues with people I don't know if they're coming people are talking about them more or whether they're actually increasing I, I, I don't know but I think it would be a wonderful thing to do more research on to understand how we do reframe those questions and, and design solutions for them Two questions over here. Um, the first is here. I think this is a question from Twitter. I've got a couple actually. Um, the first one is what insights has design thinking had that you found another discipline knew before designers did? I'm not sure that makes sense actually. <laughs> um, uh, what, what insights has design thinking had that you found another design discipline knew before designers did? I don't know, that's too difficult for me at the end of the And the other one might be easier to understand. Designers and those associated with the profession may understand design thinking, but how far is it understood 
by the public? How far has it caught on? Yeah, I don't know. I, do? I, I, I think... Um, I'm still trying to explain to my mum exactly what I do, but um, um, I, th I think it makes sense to people when you explain it to them. I think businesses are very aware of it. I'm not sure the broad public is that aware of it, to be honest with you. And uh, again, back to your education question, I think it would be great if there was more awareness around it and that people were using it as a process more in their lives, actually, um, would be great. But I don't think it is that that well-known with the public, actually. There was one question back there, and then I think we're going to have to draw it to a close. I see some hands, but uh, we are going to join Sue for a drink downstairs. So if we can take the last question, which was over here. Whoever gets their hand up first, I guess, wins. There we go. <laughs> I, I have the microphone, so I think I, think I win the vote. Um, I'm uh, Doug Morrison, and I'm setting up a London chapter of Open IDEO. And I'd uh, like your advice on what sort of challenges you think um, are best suited for solution by a group like that. I mean, I actually think mental health is a, is a super interesting one because you could get a really broad set of insight from that. Um, I, think, I think challenges that are great on open IDEO um, are ones that are quite accessible to a broad group of people. We actually launched, Open IDEO came out of the London studio, and we actually launched the first challenge with Jamie Oliver, and it was around kids and obesity. And that's really easy for lots of people to get engaged with and understand and have insight on. And so I'd say, and that got lots of users right up front. So I'd say pick, pick something that people can uh, get passionate about and have a point of view on and then I think you'll get lots of people uh, participating in it. Uh, thank you. So apologies to those um, that we didn't, um, we didn't, you didn't get a chance to ask Sue your question. Um, I'm going to take this moment. Sue has reminded us to ask human-centered questions. She's reminded us about movements, not mandates, and to be optimistic. So I'm going to close by asking the most human-centered question of all, which is, what's your favorite food, Sue? <laughs> There's so many. Um, ice cream, I ice think, cream. is one of my favorites. Good, good answer, I think. Um, where do you think, where do we most need a movement and not a mandate? Um, I, oh, that's a difficult one. I, I mean, for me, it's, it's, it's in, in, all the challenges that we're looking at. I mean, we look at lots of challenges at IDEO, but whatever challenge you're, you're looking at in your work or business or personal life, I think is, uh, is worth like getting a movement on and getting other people's points of view on and working with them to understand how to solve it. And finally, um, Lots of pessimism in the world, but um, you've reminded us to be optimistic. What are you most optimistic about? Uh, I'm actually, I, a while ago, I was a little bit sort of, uh, a little bit overwhelmed with what, that technology might overtake humans, right? I was getting a bit depressed about that. And that has completely changed for me now, actually. I think that we should never let technology get above us. I think it should be a tool that we use to um, enable us to, do better things and more interesting things. And that's something that I've become much more optimistic about, actually, in the last six months. Um, 
Thank you, um, everyone, for joining us tonight. Um, thank you for everyone who stayed with us for the whole day of this launch of the RSA Student Design Awards. Um, it just remains to say that we will all now adjourn downstairs and continue the conversation, the healthy dialogue over a drink. You are all welcome to join us. Um, and it just remains to say thank you to our excellent speaker, Sue Sadal. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.